All right, so I'm talking here with Coach Brandon Gibson out of Jackson Wink. Uh, Coach, let's sort of start with an overview of things. If you were to look at the striking in MMA from the early UFC Mark Coleman days, then through the you know sort of Chuck Liddell era, um, then to George St. Pierre, and I guess where we are now, and I'm picking different fighters as emblematic of their eras, but when you trace that train and you lead us to today, 2015 on the precipice of 2016, how would you describe the overall development of striking in mixed martial arts? Um, yeah, the, the development over the past 20 years has just been phenomenal to watch and witness. Uh, you, you saw the guys coming from uh, one discipline school to the, the sprawl and brawls of the Chuck Liddell and Matt Hughes generation to the refined striking of GSP or Anderson or John Jones to now um, guys like Conor McGregor who are just uh, so diverse with their range and their technique and their fluidity. So I, I think it's been uh, it's been awesome to watch the develop, development all, and um, I'm trying to stay ahead of it with my guys, you know, try to be at the, the tip of the spear with the development and stay ahead of these trends, you know, offensively and defensively. In terms of the scale of the number of people who are good at jiu-jitsu, it took a while in mixed martial arts for that to happen. But it's also true that the like the grappling was ahead of the striking for many, many years. Mm-hmm. That's that's beginning to change. Why did it take so long for striking to catch up? I don't know. I, I think early on you had guys that were either grapplers or strikers. I think it was hard for them to effectively blend the two. And now we're seeing this generation that have been doing uh, the the wide variety of mixed martial arts for you know most of their adult life or or coming up through as a teenager, and it's becoming uh, more natural for them to balance and find the the transitional elements. I think those were the biggest areas that were lacking for a long time. Um, yeah, I don't know why it took a while to catch up. I think just nullifying the wrestling and the grappling, it, it took these guys a while. And I think learning um, the range and the levels an effective striker needed to have to be effective in this game also took a while to play out. And Just as an example to clarify what you're saying, can you give me just, and it could be anything, just a basic example of one of these transition areas that you just described that you think has really come along, that is part of everyone's game, or at least you know many people's game, something that people do really well um, in terms of the transitions you mentioned. Yeah, I think um, you know maybe Anderson Silva, Rich Franklin won, where we really saw the effectiveness of that clinch range and that tie plum uh, being applied up against the fence to uh, maybe, maybe like a Uriah Faber, hard-level changes, wrestling feints to upward striking um all the way to john jones with uh dynamic you know spinning elbows up against uh the fence from a grappling from a wrestling position from a clinch position to um you know the dynamic kicks of carlos condit against gsp where you know gsp's exiting thinking he was safe and carlos is still able to find transitional long-range strikes so when we look at the state of striking today, one thing that seems to me, um, I, I don't know if the word is apparent, but I'm kind of curious to get your view. Do you believe that the influence of Thai boxing in MMA is fading to an extent? Now, by that, I don't mean people view it as ineffective in any capacity, but maybe that it had this outsized 
overused profile that is sort of regressing to a more normal level? I do. I believe early on uh, that the Thai boxing style and the Dutch kickboxing style, you know, we're, we're so proficient in K1 type striking and obviously in Thai boxing that everybody thought that was the best style to apply to MMA. And I think now um, guys are getting away from it. Um, one, because of the, the height, the, the stance you need to be effective with that style. Um, I don't think it transitions very well into like a wrestling stance um, or a boxing stance. And then I also think the range wasn't as applicable now because you get these guys tall, wanting to throw a leg kick, and they'd also be in range to get blast double leg, you know, like um, GSP and Tiago Alves. It also requires a, a more of a square stance, which lessens the mobility of a fighter's footwork and overall movement. Help me understand that. Why would a square stance impart limit mobility? Um, it, it's it's hard to you know quickly accelerate. It's hard to level change. It's hard to you know have any kind of lateral or circular movement. Um, whereas a, a longer rangey stance like um, Dillashaw's or McGregor's or John Jones or even GSP's, um, it, it's much easier to be dynamic with your entries through the boxing range into the clinch range or you know retreating past a kicking range what has been the enduring contribution of Thai boxing in other words if you looked around today you can still see elements of it would it be the focus on leg kicking and the uh you know the understanding of the clinch positions how, how would you view the things that are still valuable about Thai boxing today i would definitely say the the clinch positions um Thai plum style clinch control to outside even Greco style uh, trips and sweeps. I think that's still um, prominent. Uh, definitely the knees and short range elbows. I think those are all elements that are going to stay throughout the next generation of MMA striking for sure. But I think the taller squared stance, um, uh, em- emphasis on kicks as opposed to hands, I, I think some of that will, will get exposed and fade out. So that was the next question I actually had. I'm glad you brought that up. To what extent did the focus on Thai boxing limit, I don't know if it's just boxing that I want to say, but overall, I don't know, kind of a, a dual threat upper body game, but that also leads into things you can use for defense, things you can use for wrestling. To what extent did it just cut off a game from the waist up by focusing on Thai boxing for MMA purposes. Yeah, I think it got away from the transitional aspects um, of allowing wrestlers to wrestle or strikers to defend shots. Um, I, th- I think that tall stance and limiting, you know, t- Thai boxing, they're, they're not known as the greatest boxers, right? It is that emphasis on kicks and, um, where where we really saw good boxer wrestlers take over, like George St. Pierre, you know, just utilize his jab and his single and double so well, it, it negated and neutralized a lot of the traditional Thai boxing style. So I think we got away a little bit from just the tall teep style kicks and heavy leg kicks because we were, we kept getting taken down by good wrestlers. So when I look around today, 
Uh, actually, one more question about this. So, what's been kind of interesting is you see some other guys come in. You see a Gunnar Nelson or a Justin Scoggins, and they've got the sideways stance. And to an extent, it works for them. Then you see guys like Anthony Pettis who can borrow from some of his Taekwondo background. You look at someone like Kung Lee who was able to, I think, very effectively for a while incorporate mm-hmm. his San Chao style. But no one ever rushed to replace what they were doing with what those other guys were doing. These guys were simply able to take and adapt it. Why has there never been another system of striking come through where people could say, wow, this is clearly more beneficial. I mean, look at what Kung Lee is doing. He has takedowns and throws and and trips, and he can also strike and spin. Nothing ever replaced Thai boxing as a predominant model. Why? Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think... um maybe it's something that got rooted in early MMA that um, Thai boxing was the solution, you know, it was one of those core elements and the guys never really did get away from it. And I think there's still a lot of gyms here in America and, you know, outside the country too, that are very Thai boxing or Dutch style based striking. And, you know, we, we still see effective strikers come from that system. Guys like, um, you know, Rumble Johnson under the tutelage of Dutch kickboxer Henry Hoof has been very effective at, at his MMA-based striking. But overall, I think there's not enough collaboration. I think a lot of these coaches just want to coach and teach their system as opposed to collaborating with what makes their fighter effective. And I think that's why it's been so rooted and intertwined with the game period. Um, I don't think too many coaches were quick to adapt to uh, new trends in MMA like Kung Lee San Shao or Machida's karate. Would you say that the jujitsu in particular might have a more collaborative? I mean, even they have their own issues, right? But generally speaking, is it a fair characterization to say that as a sport with a few pockets here or there, maybe notwithstanding, it's a more collaborative community in terms of sharing best practices? Yeah, yeah, and I think I've seen a lot more collaboration between the wrestlers and the jiu-jitsu community as well, where I think the strikers, um, the, the different striking systems aren't too quick to collaborate with each other. I think there's been great strikers that have worked you know, very well with jiu-jitsu, but as far as different striking methods collaborating with each other, that's not something I've seen that much of. So for years, it's not that I dismissed the boxing community but I certainly took everything they said about MMA striking with a grain of salt. They would you know, have any number of issues because I would say they don't understand the, the brutality of leg kicks. They don't understand the small gloves and how that changes uh, any number of things. But as time goes on, it's really beginning to resonate with me. And maybe I'm wrong about this, and if I am, by all means, correct me. But I'm beginning to see these, these precepts that, that make boxing what it is, movement, angles, and in particular, timing. That is really coming to the foreground with the more elite strikers. Do, do you agree with this characterization, or, or am I missing something? No, I definitely believe those are uh, very important elements, but I still think, um, and, and you know, I was raised with karate and boxing, so, this, so that's my background. But I do think boxing, um, from a defensive standpoint, is still very, very, very flawed in transitions to MMA. Um, I think Holly Holm was able, you know, with her great boxing background, was able to negate Ronda Rousey with MMA striking, you know, and and Ronda's been very focused on traditional boxing, and I think it showed a lot of flaws in that fight. Um, But 
you're right. The tr- the transitions of being able to be balanced and be accurate and be precise and tight angles and footwork do have their place in modern MMA striking. Before we talk about the good things, help me understand why uh, defensively boxing for MMA purposes, as taught by boxers, could be problematic. Um, because of the range of MMA, I think it's so much. You know, the the traditional just the size of the octagon to the typical distance an MMA fight is fought. Um, A lot of traditional boxing elements don't transition that well into it. Um, And from a defensive standpoint, you know, a a Philly shell isn't going to make you stop a head kick. You know, there's, there's too many openings, but there are a lot, you know, like I said, a lot of elements of boxing from, tight pivots to angular footwork to feints and parries that definitely going to continue to grow in this sport. So that's what I was getting at. You know, you the the, the past week, so the Ultimate Fighter 80, excuse me, excuse me, um, UFC Fight Night 80, Ultimate Fighter 22, and then UFC 194, and then even to an extent last week, you just saw from, you know, you talk about Frankie Edgar, and um, and then there's Conor McGregor striking, but it was more than that. Uh, I went back and watched tape with Anthony Pettis versus uh, Donald Cerrone the first time. It, you just see the ones who parry, the ones who can shift in the pocket, the ones who have just that step ahead on timing, it makes dramatic differences. But it can't all just be a work ethic issue. So again, I would ask, what did it, what happened where all of a sudden, and I guess I'm sure it's not all of a sudden, but it feels like all of a sudden, what happened where you're beginning to notice clearly that the guys who can do those sorts of things have a dramatic, dramatic advantage? I think um, a, good, a good example of this evolution is a guy like Alistair Overeem. You know, Alistair was K1 Grand Prix champ. He had so much success early in his career, marching guys down in a Dutch Thai style and finding his clinched knees and finding his big body kicks and uppercuts to the Alistair that fought uh, this past Saturday night. Very patient, um, long-range footwork, lots of feints, and he finally found that inside slip against Junior and was able to find that one-punch knockout. But it was set up with eight minutes of movement and range and feints and er- er- everything that was the opposite of Alistair from five years ago that would just march guys down and throw giant knees to, to what extent did he have to be reminded that these changes are necessary for success or was he basically always aware and it just took him a while to get his game in the MMA space to where he wanted it to be I think Alistair was always aware I think you know we just we just had to find he just had to right, find the right coaching staff to inspire him to lay out that that blueprint and to collaborate with him you know obviously he still has super effective traditional movement and moves we just have to put him in the right spot to uh, exploit these other guys and I think um, you know guys like TJ Dillashaw or Dominic Cruz or Conor McGregor are finding um, openings based off these old precepts of what should and shouldn't be from a stance to uh, a typical, whether it's like a tie boxing movement or a boxing movement. I think uh, these are the guys that are trying to find those transitional openings and elements and, um, and break the norm. So let's talk about those guys in particular. When you watch them compete, what's interesting to me, and we haven't seen too much of Dominic Cruz, but certainly of Dillashaw and the Barrow fights and McGregor more recently in a couple of his fights, 
when you watch, and particularly for Dillashaw versus Barat, it's just so it's so uh, it's so different. You can see that one person is striking one way and another person is striking another way, and one style is just so vastly ahead of the other one. What is TJ Dillashaw doing that is giving him such? I mean, you don't you don't even have to know anything about striking to know that one guy is just clearly a step ahead of the other. What 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 are the insights that he has that he's bringing to light? Well, I think one of the biggest advantages is TJ's seen guys with movement like Hinnon thousands and thousands of rounds, but Hinnon's never seen movement like Dillashaw has. And uh, myself as a striking coach, I know a lot of these schools and these fighters and their gyms are only used to seeing one type of movement. And then to be able to exploit that in the cage where, where their brain is trying to fire and recognize these new patterns and movements and make, make um, some logical understanding of what's going on, it's, it's too late. They're already too far behind. Where we as, you know, kind of, uh, I don't know, I like to think of myself as that next generation striking coach. I know what these traditional boxers are used to seeing. I know what these traditional Thai boxers are used to seeing. And I'm, I'm looking for areas where we could disrupt that from a defensive standpoint. But I guess, I mean, technically, can you give me a couple of examples of things he does that feeds off the more predictable reactions and movements that something that someone like Barrow might give him? Um, I, I think, you know, obviously the angles and being able to switch stances through combinations, I think that's an element that's throwing a lot of guys off. Um, I think even five years ago, you would see a guy... I don't know, maybe like a Matt Hughes, for example. If he was in his southpaw stance, you knew he wanted to shoot. And if he was in his orthodox stance, you knew he wanted to strike. Where that was kind of easier to break down from a, from a game plan side. Now we're seeing these guys that are transitioning through their strikes and combos and finding their you know, maybe stronger um, stance to shoot takedowns and then transitioning back through for uh, you know, good angles southpaw flanks or orthodox flanks and finding super effective striking. I think that was the biggest thing that um, TJ was able to exploit against Hinnon. And what about Conor McGregor? When you look at what he's doing, um, I mean, there wasn't much to look at in 13 seconds, but there was some. What, what, did, you, what did you see as the um, some of the dominant advantages he had in retrospect? I think one thing that Conor's really revolutionizing is... Um, is that long-range stance, it's low, it's long. He's able to close distance very rapidly. Um, he's able to utilize his reach very, very well. And he's able to move at a variety of angles and be able to strike in motion. And that's an area where I feel like a lot of these guys are also behind. You know, Jose's entrance, Connor's seen that a million times. Even though I don't think, um, I think Saturday night was kind of class, or two Saturdays ago, was kind of class book class book um you know traditional step back find your counter right down the center um it was just i think connor's movement made jose force his way into that range and that was jose's mistake um connor's also really good at pressuring guys up against the fence line using the cage and finding his his circular attacks his spinning attacks to take away their movement and range you know like the mendez finish one thing that's been uh on my mind too is um 
you know, lethality being lethal at all these different ranges. So it, for a while there was, are you lethal in the clinch? And what does that mean? Are you lethal in boxing range? Are you lethal in kickboxing range? And now I feel like we're, the lines are getting blurred a little bit. Let me give you an example about what I mean. Carlos Condit, a guy you know very well. You go back into the Tiago Alves fight. And he throws the overhand elbow. I don't, know, I don't know actually what you call it, but it, it looks like it's an overhand punch. That's what Tiago Alves is expecting, and instead he's getting cracked with an elbow at close range. In other words, it feels like boxing range, but he hits you like it's at clinch range, and you don't know how to tell the difference. Is the ability to blur these lines another component of the development of striking? 100%, and that's something we're working very hard on. Um, I think Carlos was able to kind of highlight that transition through ranges um, where guys are looking for resets or they're looking for just traditional boxing from a boxing range. Um, I think John Jones was able to, to really exemplify that early on too against Rashad Evans where Rashad was so worried about John's hands and his boxing range and then John was able to control Rashad's hands and step through into those rollover elbows. Um, I do think that's an area where myself especially – uh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to change this game. I'm trying to find these openings and, and find these guys with these defensive habits where they're not, they're not anticipating or expecting um, clinch range strikes from a boxing range or you know, kick, range, kick attacks from a boxing range. You know, we're, we're trying to put in these vastly new uh, elements. So, th- so this is an interesting uh, example that you bring up because – um, and the John Jones one is good because he's been using them for quite some time. Um, mm-hmm. But I was just thinking about, you know, Carlos Condit sort of has his reputation as a, as a striker, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. But this is very much like the – I don't want you to give away your trade secrets, but to what extent is this just guess and check? In other words, I asked you previously, like, why didn't Sanchao take over Thai boxing? And there may be any number of reasons for that. There's not enough gyms or whatever the case. But also they don't have any of this kind of stuff either. You guys are just kind of on this new frontier, figuring it out as you go. Is that maybe why the process of evolution of striking in MMA has been a little bit slower? Because there's just no one leading the charge except for the people who are there right doing it right now. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. You know, I think a lot of these old coaches were um, stuck in their ways and they knew that their style worked. And now as the game changes, they're not the ones necessarily willing to... uh, adapt and change themselves you know they want to keep teaching their same secrets their same formula um or a guy like me like i don't i'm not trying to teach some standard set kata that applies for everyone i'm trying to find the elements that works you know very well for alistair overeem and polish them up in all these different areas and and collaborate with them like we're musicians you know i train overeem very different than i do condit jones or a guy like john dotson um, so I don't really look at myself as, you know, like a set style striking coach. I always look at myself as a collaborator and, um, I'm, I'm trying to find, you know, through these natural movements and strengths that these guys have areas that we could really, um, add on to and exploit out of their opponents. Well, that's an interesting thing you bring up because it, it, it's, it makes sense what you're saying, but one theory I had, and again, by all means, if I'm, if I'm lost in the sauce, I need your help. <laughs> One of the things I thought that was really important about what Dwayne Ludwig brought to Team Alpha Male was um, he was able to improve what they needed at scale. In other words, 
you had all these guys that, you know, they're not all the same size, but they're relatively close in size given, you know, what other teams might look like. And they all have very similar backgrounds. He's like lightweight and below wrestle boxers. So you bring yep. a, you bring in a coach, a striking coach. Boy, he can do a lot for them. Does that a do you agree with that assessment first? And then I guess second, does that mean that the next level is catering to each individual? Um, you know, I think what Dwayne was able to bring to Alpha Male um, really shined during that period he was there. Um, and guys like TJ really took to it. You know, obviously the the brow fights highlight I think Dwayne's style with that group of fighters. Um, but the next generation, I wouldn't necessarily say needs that because um, those polished basics and defense will never go away, never go away. But I don't look at myself as like um, you know that white belt or blue belt instructor. I'm I'm working with very very high level guys where I am able as a striking coach to, you know, find those finite little details and rhythms and off rhythms that work well for them. But um, overall, MMA striking will still always need those core fundamentals, um, especially based in good balance, good defensive awareness, good accuracy, and good movement. Without getting sidetracked in the debate, is there an argument to be made that – you know, not for everyone, but if you're a high-level UFC fighter, either champion or championship level, right, you're in that discussion, that not only does it make sense to maybe not do all the team training to preserve yourself um, physically, but that if you've got someone like a Brandon Gibson, you need that collaborative experience to really maximize what you can do. In other words, if you're one of these elite guys, there's a very strong case to be made that there are a number of benefits for training, you know, uh, making camps around you for those explicit purposes, both health and safety, but also, um, you know, technical exploration. 100%. I'm definitely a big believer that um, for these high-level guys that, you know, I've had so many fights and they, they've reached the upper echelon of the UFC, um, sparring isn't really beneficial for them. Um, you know, I'm definitely aware of, you know, long-term brain injury uh, long-term health, uh, and defense is always my top, top, top priority. So with that being said, I feel like I can give Carlos Condit a lot more with an additional pad session or drill session than he would get out of going three rounds with some random guys that are at the gym that day. And I think that is kind of a focus of our gym altogether. Um, you know, our top level guys don't really spar that much. They spend a lot more time specific drilling, specific game plan with, um, really working together based on their opponent and what we want to get out of the fight. So like the movement Alistair over him showed the other night was things we had been drilling for three months. And it was great to see that all come to fruition and play out like we had hoped it would. Um, but he, he spent a lot more time on that than he did random sparring. And when he did spar, you know, he worked on game plan specific stuff. If there were no concerns about the brain injury and the beating the body down, would you have them spar as much? And here's what I mean. In jiu-jitsu, you get injured too. You get heel hooked. Anything can go wrong. But you never have to stop sparring. Like it, It's always a process. You're always, Even if you're Helio Gracie 90, you're out there doing arm bars from the guard. But mm-hmm. striking, you just don't have the same amount of um, resources to give. But I guess my question is, if knowing all that, if if the if the damage wasn't an issue, would you still taper back on some of the sparring? 
Yeah, I think I would, you know, a lot of these guys I see um, spar for almost like a conditioning element or uh, a moral, psychological development. Um, I don't know how many of them really go in and spar with purpose and intent to work on X, Y, and Z and implement, at, you know, A, B, and C. I, you know, I think they just get in with guys who are the sparring partners that want to impose their will and that they try to impose um theirs right back and they leave too many miles in the gym you know uh, i'm an advocate that um if you're going to be sparring you should spar with intention on getting better you should go in there with a game plan that will be applicable to uh your upcoming fight and um, not just go in there for the sake of throwing down I think when you're at a, a younger age and a younger level, that is needed, you know, to find that toughness, to find those things that can only be taught in the gym. Um, but at the high level, I, absolutely not. So the one lingering issue about all the striking, a lot of the development we talk about, we talk about in terms of offense. Defense, though, I still don't know where we're at. You know, you can make an argument that there's a defense to say it's not merely keeping your, you know, your chin tucked and your hands high, but, you know, getting in and out of range or, you know, taking mm-hmm. an angle so that you're not there. But I guess the, my question to you would be, in terms of defensive responsibility, has, uh, no, let me, let me walk that back. The question is, in terms of the growth of striking and how it's gotten better, I'm sure it's gotten better in both accounts. Has it gotten better more on the offensive side, or has it gotten better more on the defensive side, or more right down the middle? Um, I, I think it's definitely gotten better on the offensive side. I think defensively, there's still a lot of areas that need to be polished and worked. Um, you know, and kind of going back to our discussion on boxing or even tie boxing, when these guys are used to training with 16 ounce gloves, they develop defensive habits that keep them safe with those type of gloves on. And then when you switch to four ounce glove, all of a sudden certain punches that you're used to blocking with a certain style aren't working anymore. Now you're eating punches and getting knocked out. Um, I was always a fan of Rampage Jackson. He would, he would do that high block in pride where he would cover, you know, even the back of his head, he'd get his elbow up so high. Um, I was always a fan of that because, Big big boxing gloves, these guys uh, have the tendency to get lazy. You know, they'll cover just their chin, which ends up covering their jaw and their ear. And then come fight night, they get blasted right in the ear and knocked out. Um, I, so I, I do know we have a ways to go on the defensive side of things. Um, and I think the footwork and the range awareness are the, the first kind of frontiers of breaking into that new defensive style. I think another element, too, that really needs to be taken into consideration is when the UFC has a big cage or a small cage. Obviously, we see a lot higher knockout rates when the UFC has events with a small cage. So as a coach, I need to be aware of that and have game plan and defensive movement that take that small cage into account because it's it's very different angles in there. Could you give me just a quick example of what a different angle you might see with a certain opponent? Like just uh, help me contextualize it a little bit. Um, you know, in that small cage, it's, it's very easy to corral the opponent up against the fence. So if, if I was in a, having a small cage fight, I'd have my fighters work on a lot of like juke style footwork up against the fence line where you don't know if you're exiting to the lead side or to the power side or level changing and shooting right through. Um, whereas in the big cage, it, it is easier to find that exit range and cir- circle out quickly. 
um, yeah, the, the, the pressure in that small cage makes a big difference. So with all these factors together, and I really appreciate your time, where are we headed? And I know that's a very big question and it's very broad, but I guess the, you know, noting some of the things we've talked about getting, you know, changing up strikes at different ranges and, and confusing people and movement and angles. Is it just more of that? Where are we headed with striking in MMA? I think it's um it's going to need to maintain a balance of you know the traditional polished basics um, and then also include the creative elements um, the feints the long range striking um, aggressive level changes tight angles um, and even from a conditioning standpoint I bet we're going to see more of that natural movement playing a role into the upper echelon fighters camps, you know, Connor moving with Ido Portal under a stick. Everybody may think is goofy, but it's about, um, his accuracy in motion. It's about his overall balance. It's about his positional awareness. So I think you'll see that at a higher level come into play more and more, but the balance for a guy like me as a coach is to say, okay, well, that's cool. We also need to get a thousand jabs in on that bag. That was a jab. Sounds like a heavy toll. Um, last question before we let you go. We didn't really explore it in this one because I could go on forever, but I, I can't keep you forever. But Dominic Cruz is going to take on TJ Dillashaw here very soon, which, I mean, has me salivating in ways. I, just The technical possibilities there seem almost limitless. In terms of footwork, what are you expecting between Dominic Cruz and TJ Dillashaw? Yeah, I think that footwork is going to be outstanding and I think both of them are going to be working to try to outflank one another um, I think we're going to see a lot of uh, transitions uh, switch stances throughout um, they're going to be pressuring each other and try to flank with that switch stance um, I think where it's going to really play out is in that boxing range I think whoever is going to be more dominant in that boxing range is going to get their hand raised um, I think from that long kicking range it's going to be a movement fest, and they're just—it's going to be the first one to make a defensive movement error that's going to get capitalized on. Um, you know, I, I don't think Dominic's going to have a lot of ring rest. I mean, I, I kind of thought he was going to in his last one, and he went out there and got the job done quickly. And I think one benefit Cruz has, even though he's been on the bench, is doing that analysis job for Fox and for the UFC. He, you know, his his mind has never gotten to take a break. He's been watching and breaking these things down technically, and I think he's been doing a very good job at it. And I think he's going to be ready for Dillashaw's movement. Um, I'm interested to see if he can, if he could apply his own and really pressure Dillashaw back with his movement. It's going to be interesting to see. Uh, Coach Brandon Gibson, thank you so much for your time today. I could talk to you forever, but uh, alas, forever is not my uh, opportunity. But thank you so much. It's been extraordinarily insightful. Thank you. Thank you, Luke. All right. Take care, my friend.